before I start the show, I just wanted to make a quick announcement to any of our listeners that use the Stitcher app. Just in case you haven't seen the news, as of August 29th, they're shutting down the app. So if you're using Stitcher to listen to your podcasts, which I actually do as well, you're going to need to find a new podcast app. And just to make life a little bit easier, there's instructions on the Stitcher website on how to export your shows to another platform. This only applies to listeners using the Stitcher podcast app. So remember, if you don't want any interruptions on your favorite shows, you've got until August 29th to find a new podcast app. Thanks for listening. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. other, the children kept dying. By the time Laura Elizabeth Folbig was laid to rest, at just one and a half years old, the world wanted answers, and her mother, Kathleen Folbig, stood accused of one of the most heinous crimes imaginable, the murder of her four own children, all under the age of two. In Kathleen's bedside drawer, her husband discovered a handwritten diary that seemed to include a cryptic confession. And after a high-profile court case, she was sentenced to 40 years in prison. News outlets called her Australia's worst female serial killer and Australia's most hated woman. But through it all, Kathleen maintained her innocence, even as appeals and inquiries failed to clear her name. But after spending nearly 20 years behind bars, a petition published by the Australian Academy of Science shed new light on her case. The conviction that had branded her a murderer was based on assumption, but the science told a different story. Join me now as we follow the odyssey of Kathleen Fulbig from her tragic early life to the ordeal of losing four children, her marriage, her freedom, through her decades-long incarceration, and eventual redemption. Most people hope and pray they never experience a fraction of the tragedy Kathleen Folbig has been through, suffering the catastrophic loss of four of her children, then endured the animosity of practically an entire nation, her former husband included when she was accused of being responsible. Worse than that, she endured it behind bars, with only a few trusted listeners willing to hear her side of the story. She's had grief-fueled diary entries dissected in the courts and in the media, and tried to maintain some kind of faith in humanity, while she watched appeals and inquiries flounder for the same flawed reasons. But Kathleen's tragic story began long before any of these events made her infamous throughout Australia. It began before she was even old enough to remember. 
because when Kathleen was only 18 months old, her father murdered her mother. After a night of heavy drinking and a vicious argument, Thomas John Britton stabbed Kathleen Donovan 24 times in the streets of Annandale, a suburb of Sydney, Australia, about two weeks before Christmas of 1968. His reason? He worried Kathleen was so negligent she was going to kill their child and felt justified in ending her life. However he rationalized this particular crime, Thomas was no stranger to violence. He worked as an enforcer for organized crime in Australia, and in 1952, he slashed his first wife Margaret's throat. Fortunately, she survived, and Jack spent eight months in jail. But after being released, he had several more children on top of the one he'd had with Margaret. One of those children was little Kathleen, who shared her mother's name, Kathleen Donovan, a woman who struggled with alcohol and gambling and left two children behind from a previous marriage. In November 1968, Thomas argued with her about how much she drank in front of the baby. When he took her drink out of her hand, Kathleen took her purse and walked out. For the next month, Thomas pleaded with her to take him and the baby back. When that didn't work, he psyched himself up by drinking over a dozen beers before tracking down Kathleen Donovan and stabbing her to death. Thomas was sentenced to 14 years in prison, after which he was deported back to his home country of Wales. Baby Kathleen still technically had one parent who was still alive, but with a father behind bars, she was basically an orphan. And after her mother's murder, was basically shuffled from place to place, spending time at a church orphanage, then with an aunt who decided she was too much of a handful and passed her on. Her luck seemed to turn at the age of three when she was taken in by the Marlboros, a foster family with two older children, living in Kotara, about two hours north of Sydney. Although the whole family found little Kathleen adorable, there were still some barriers to overcome. The Marlboros tried to protect Kathleen by never speaking about her birth family, but their cagey answers only piqued her curiosity. Kathleen had no memory of her life before them, and she would later describe their answers to her questions as brick walls in her face. To make matters worse, a call with a caseworker while she was in high school revealed another family secret. Kathleen hadn't officially been adopted by the Marlboro family, as she thought, she was still being fostered. In the eyes of the law, at least, Kathleen was technically still a ward of the state rather than a fully recognized member of the Marlboro family. To Kathleen, it meant her feelings of being chosen by her foster family had all been a lie. So it's probably no coincidence that around that same time, she showed up at the house of her friend, Tracy Chapman, with a suitcase hoping to move in with her family instead. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way, but Tracy would remain a deeply loyal friend in ways Kathleen could have never imagined. Kathleen's family troubles came to a head when she dropped out of high school six months before finishing. Instead of graduating, Kathleen moved in with another friend and got a job working at an Indian restaurant. It wouldn't be long before she met the man of her dreams, 
and soon-to-be father of her children. Kathleen was out in the town for a night of dancing when she spotted Craig Fulbig. He was in his mid-twenties, working as a clerk at a mining company. 18-year-old Kathleen was taken by him immediately. He was supportive and trustworthy, which in Kathleen's world counted for a lot. The couple was engaged in 1986 and married the following year. In the wedding photos, Kathleen is almost glowing with happiness, smiling ear to ear as she looks at Craig in his handsome gray suit and powder blue bow tie. But drama followed Kathleen, even to her own wedding. Craig came from a large family and couldn't bear to leave anyone off the guest list. The Marlboros thought the long list was impractical and in the end managed to argue themselves off of it. One of the side effects of coming from a large family is that Craig really wanted one of his own. He was very much looking forward to being a dad himself and less than a year after the wedding, Kathleen was pregnant. In her words, having a family base was also important. And after sharing details about a mysterious past to Craig, he encouraged her to find out the truth about her biological parents. Together they went to Sydney to dig through old police records, looking for details about her birth mother. And though she didn't get satisfaction that day, there were other avenues still to pursue. Half-sisters and aunts she spoke to over the phone and by mail filled in some of the gaps. And slowly, Kathleen managed to piece together the story of her biological parents. It was another uncle who finally admitted the family had trouble facing her because she was a reminder of the rift her father had torn open. Though unearthing the whole truth would take years, eventually it was clear a happy reunion with her extended family just wasn't in the cards. But Kathleen had gotten used to being disappointed and since being a child, had practiced the art of hiding or suppressing her feelings, a skill that came in handy as tragedy after tragedy rocked her adult life. Kathleen and Craig settled in the Newcastle suburb of Mayfield to raise their first child. Kathleen was excited, preparing for motherhood by improving her diet and forcing Craig to quit smoking inside. She vividly recalled the first ultrasound appointment when she heard her baby's heartbeat and felt life growing inside her. It symbolized the future, when the rootlessness that had dodged her her whole life would finally end. Like any parents, all the Fulbigs wanted was their little one to be born healthy, and on February 1st, 1989, it appeared they got their wish when Caleb Gibson was born. There was just one minor complication. Caleb's breathing was noisy, and a pediatrician diagnosed him with laryngomalacia, or floppy larynx in layperson's terms. This occurs when the tissue in the larynx isn't stiff enough and can fold in, obstructing the airway. But the doctor assured Craig and Kathleen that Caleb's case was mild enough he'd eventually grow out of it. Back at home, the new parents had prepared a nursery next to their bedroom. It was there on the 20th of February, 19 days after Caleb was born, that Kathleen laid him down in his bassinet for the last time. 
As she noted in her care record, Caleb was having a rough night. He was awake and fussing from midnight to 2 a.m. Then around 3 a.m., Craig woke up to screams. When he dashed into the baby's room, Kathleen was standing at the foot of the bassinet, wailing. There's something wrong with my baby. Caleb was swaddled and lying on his back, just as modern pediatric care recommends, but he wasn't breathing. Craig told Kathleen to call an ambulance and he attempted CPR, but it was already too late. Caleb's death was attributed to SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, also known as Crib Death, a syndrome that today is still not fully understood, though infants prone to it are likely to have breathing issues. The grieving parents ran a notice in the local paper that said, Take care of him, Nanny a reference to Caleb's grandmother, who'd passed away before him. With Kathleen grieving and in a fog, Craig was left to handle most of the arrangements, including the funeral. During that time, Kathleen was functioning on autopilot and couldn't remember if her parents attended Caleb's funeral. Her euphoria had abruptly turned to numbness, and in the following days and months, she avoided human contact wherever possible grief counselors included. Instead, Kathleen threw herself into every distraction she could find, making plans to renovate the house, spending lots of time with her dogs. She even went back to work at the Indian restaurant. All the while, the children in the neighborhood stood out as reminders of what Kathleen had lost. That was bad enough, so she never went to the remembrance wall to visit Caleb's ashes. Craig, on the other hand, went constantly. Although losing a child to SIDS is every parent's worst nightmare, it's sadly not uncommon. And so after some consultations at the hospital, Craig and Kathleen picked up the pieces and tried again. By September, less than a year after Caleb's passing, their second child was on the way. Patrick Allen Fulbig was born in June 1990, and this time... Kathleen and Craig wanted to leave nothing to chance, so Kathleen researched potential environmental risks in the area, while Craig took off three months to help parent in an era where paternity leave was far less common than it is today. On one hand, they felt more prepared the second time around. On the other, there was an undeniable tension in the air. Late nights were especially hard with memories of Caleb flooding back whenever they checked on Patrick in his crib. But just as Kathleen found herself retreating back into her detached mode, Patrick made eye contact with her, and the walls came tumbling down again. But just three days after Craig returned to full-time work, he was once again woken up to the sounds of screaming. It was a terrifying moment of deja vu, Kathleen stood at the end of Patrick's cot, and Craig scooped him up and performed CPR. He was warm, but his lips were blue. This time, there was one merciful difference. The baby made it to the hospital and was placed on oxygen, but two days later, Patrick suffered an epileptic seizure, and in the aftermath, a neurologist determined there had been significant brain damage. The boy who had healed Kathleen's heart by making eye contact was now suffering from cortical blindness. It was another devastating blow, 
and Kathleen didn't cope well. After being discharged, Kathleen began leaving Patrick with her in-laws and neighbors to escape the situation. One night, Craig found her diary and couldn't resist the temptation to read what was inside, and he was shaken by what he read. One of Kathleen's entries suggested that Craig and Patrick would be better off without her in the picture, and she was thinking of leaving. But despite expressing her personal doubts in her diary, Kathleen was making an effort to handle the situation. She'd gotten involved with the Royal Blind Society and studied up on how to raise a blind child. Then, when Patrick was eight months old, Craig got a frantic call at work. It was Kathleen sobbing. It's happening again. When he arrived home, the ambulance was arriving at the same time and Patrick was rushed to the hospital. But this time, he didn't make it. Once again, Kathleen spent the next while in such a fog she couldn't remember Patrick's funeral. To cope, she avoided social contact and lay on the couch filling the void with food. She took photos of the children out of their frames and hid them where they couldn't be seen. Meanwhile, Craig tried to find comfort in his family. Finding different ways to process their grief only seemed to increase the distance between the couple. Kathleen would later tell a psychiatrist that she came home one day to find Craig in a romantic clinch with one of her friends. It was a twist of the knife for Kathleen, who was already feeling unattractive after gaining weight as a result of stress eating. To make matters more humiliating, her friend was too drunk to drive home and had to spend the night. It was clear Kathleen and Craig needed a fresh start if they were going to stay together, so they decided to move to nearby Hunter Valley. There were just too many memories in that old house. As one of Australia's most important wine regions, the area had a peaceful, pastoral quality the wounded couple would hopefully find soothing. Craig changed jobs and became a car salesman. Cars had always been a passion of his. Kathleen's transition was rockier. A friend's husband offered her a job at the store he managed, Baby Co., where she was surrounded by baby clothes and other reminders. She tried to take it as an opportunity to prove herself yet again, to develop expertise and fortitude. Somehow, Kathleen and Craig managed to rebuild their lives for a second time. Then came a bombshell, an unplanned third pregnancy. Kathleen contemplated terminating the pregnancy, and when she told Craig, he didn't think he could go through it all again either. It's hard to imagine what those conversations must have been like. The tragic deaths of two babies looming over them like an elephant in the room. But behind all that, there was a dream they couldn't bear to let go of. So the Fulbigs decided to have a third child, on the condition they consult heavily with SIDS experts every step of the way. On October 14, 1992, Sarah Kathleen Fulbig was born. Although fears flared up when Sarah showed signs of sleep apnea, experts felt it was within normal bounds. This time, the baby would sleep in her parents' room with a specialized sleep apnea blanket monitoring her condition. But Kathleen was still troubled 
She worried about the baby, then worried her worry was affecting the baby. There were tensions in the marriage too. Craig had a 50-minute commute and getting enough sleep to function at work while Kathleen took the night watch caused added strain. But as Sarah closed in on her first birthday, the parents' confidence started to build to the point where Kathleen and Craig were even discussing the possibility of siblings. Heartbreakingly, 10 months after Sarah was born, the cycle repeated itself. As Craig remembered it, he woke up around 1 a.m. There was a light streaming from the door, but he was alone, so he rolled over and went back to sleep. The next thing he knew, Kathleen and Sarah were in the room with him, and Kathleen was screaming. Kathleen maintained she'd found Sarah unresponsive, but the autopsy this time turned up some anomalies that would later come back to haunt her. There were abrasions near Sarah's mouth and a few other signs that would be consistent with deliberate asphyxiation. Craig and Kathleen's marriage had endured suffering beyond most people's comprehension, and now it was being pushed almost to the breaking point. Craig and Kathleen were plunged into grief for a third time. Kathleen detached from reality while Craig obsessed over it. He wanted to bring the children's ashes home but Kathleen didn't want the constant reminder. The gulf was just too much to bridge, and they began avoiding each other. Over the next several months, they separated and reunited. Then they moved again and slowly tried to heal. Craig brought the ashes home and put them in a locked drawer in a specially built ebony table, which helped a little. Kathleen dropped the weight she gained when her grief was at its worst, and regain some self-esteem. It may seem incredible that a couple with so much history managed to stay together, but maybe that's exactly why they held on. Who else in the world could possibly understand what they'd gone through? On August 7, 1997, almost seven years after Sarah's passing, Laura Elizabeth Volbeck was born. Once again, it was a conflicted experience for Kathleen. Everyone seemed to think the law of averages dictated it couldn't possibly happen again, and a battery of medical tests found no serious anomalies to worry about. But the advanced monitoring system they'd installed to keep tabs on Laura regularly triggered false alarms, which Kathleen found maddening. Craig, on the other hand, thought that not using it would be the definition of insanity. When Laura turned one, it almost came as a surprise. She was walking and saying her first words. Milestones for any parent, but with a special meaning for the Fulpigs. It lasted until March 1st, 1999. The day started off normally enough with Kathleen going to the gym and dropping in at Craig's office. Then, around noon, another frantic call for an ambulance, another failed attempt to resuscitate a dying child. The cause of death was undetermined, but Laura Elizabeth Folbig died at 18 months old. That was considered too old for a case of SIDS, and the weight of history 
was about to come crashing down on Kathleen's head. It was incredible enough that Kathleen and Craig had kept their relationship together after losing three children. Whatever loved remained between them couldn't survive the loss of a fourth, and they separated. As Craig was packing up the house, he came across another one of Kathleen's diaries. Her notebooks used to be everywhere. Kathleen had been a prolific journaler since she was a teenager. It was a place to release all the thoughts she was too guarded to share with another person. And once that was done, Kathleen herself hardly ever looked back. She'd thrown most of them out the past Mother's Day, but Craig found one she missed. And what he read made him sick. He had his suspicions, but never really allowed himself to contemplate the possibility. Now, to his grief-choked mind, it suddenly snapped into focus. What if Kathleen had murdered his children and confessed as much in her diary? Craig submitted the diaries to the police, who had some of the same questions. Here's Kathleen in a 1999 police interview where she was asked to read segments of her diary aloud and explain just what she meant. And the next entry that I'd like to talk to, talk to you about is dated the 1st of January, 1997. Can you start from the start of that intro? Another year gone and what a year to come. I have a baby on the way, which means major personal sacrifice for both of us, but I feel confident about it all going well. This time I am going to call for help, this time and not attempt to do everything myself anymore. I know that that was the main reason for all my stress before, and stress made me do terrible things. Before Laura's death, Kathleen had made one entry that stated... I knew I was short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her, and she left with a bit of help. Another entry read, She's a fairly good-natured baby, thank goodness. It has saved her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned. Kathleen defended what she'd written as self-blame about when she got frustrated with the kids. You can almost hear her sinking feeling as she explains why it wasn't a veiled confession of murder. What terrible things? Again, talking about just stress and frustrations and the odd growling and anything of that sort of nature. You say that stress made you do terrible things? Yeah, as in um, having an angry thought here or there. Um, don't think I've met a parent that doesn't have an angry thought every now and then if the child's arguing with them or... Um, Something's not going quite right or it's just not happening, as in, uh, well, take Sarah, for example, when she wouldn't go to sleep, then sure, the battle of wills would kick in, the frustration would kick in, and yes, I would have an angry thought, but it was never to harm her. It was always, why wasn't Craig here to help me, or, you know, or something along those lines. Um, yeah. In retrospect, that sounds like a calm and well-reasoned explanation. Maybe she wasn't able to shake the accusation because her diary also contained the chilling line, Obviously, I'm my father's daughter. Considering her father was a murderer, that sentence would have profound implications for the rest of her life. It begged the question, 
Was Kathleen a grieving mother processing her children's deaths? Or was there something more sinister? The things that you're saying that you view as terrible things, mm-hmm. the, the frustrations and the, the stresses that go along with being a parent and of yeah, a young child particularly, mm-hmm. um, you've said you know every parent feels that at some time, to some degree. And yet, children don't die of it. Yes, I know that. But um, after four, what are you supposed to think? You start thinking, is it possible? Police continued investigating Kathleen for another two years before finally arresting her in 2001 and charging her with her four children's murders. Kathleen pleaded not guilty to the murder charges and remained free on bail while awaiting trial. The process took many months, and Kathleen felt shaken, but confident the truth would prevail. The prosecution alleged that Kathleen smothered her children in four separate fits of rage. Because there was no hard forensic evidence, they relied mainly on circumstantial details, like the fact Sarah's risk of SIDS should have been lower, given the extensive monitoring. Then there were the tiny abrasions around the baby's mouth, Although those could have been caused by mouth-to-mouth resuscitation performed by Craig and the paramedics. Even so, Craig testifying against his wife worked very much in the prosecution's favor. He told the court Kathleen had a vicious temper around the children and described a particularly nasty battle of wills she'd had with Laura just hours before she died. The diaries also played a major role as well as the theories of a prominent British pediatrician named Roy Meadow, who created Meadow's Law. One sudden infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder, until proven otherwise. That sentence feels true, but that doesn't mean it was backed up by medical evidence or solid statistics. The same goes for the diaries. Trawl through anyone's dirty laundry long enough and you're bound to find something off-putting. Yet to support their case, the police interview where Kathleen was grilled about her diaries was played for the court. The line about her being her father's daughter was withheld from the jury, as well as the fact her father was a murderer. In order to avoid a conviction based on guilt by association, it did, however, reach the public, and the court of public opinion decided against Kathleen. The Sydney Morning Herald wrote, The most amazing thing about the interview tape played to the court was her almost mundane incredible frustrations and feelings of guilt about losing her children. But when Sergeant Ryan was heard to ask if she killed Caleb, Patrick, Sarah, and Laura, Fulbig became hysterical watching the footage in court and stood shaking all over trying to run from the dock. If that seemed amazing at the time, According to the newspaper, today it stands out for different reasons. When Kathleen answered questions rationally, that just made her look like a good actor. But when she finally panicked, somehow it was also seen as proof of her guilt. That kind of no-win persecution often gets described as Kafkaesque. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. But not even Kafka could dream up a scenario that bleak. Kathleen Fulbig had suffered through the deaths of her four children 
and when her pain was on full display in front of a courtroom, nothing she said could turn the accusations aside. Kathleen fled the dock in terror and made it to the public gallery before she was taken to the hospital and sedated. Ultimately, in 2003, she was found guilty of three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter in Caleb's case, and an additional count of inflicting grievous bodily harm on Patrick. She was sentenced to 40 years in prison without the possibility of parole for 30 years. Practically no one in Australia gave a second thought to Kathleen's claims of innocence, least of all, her former husband, who personally thanked the jury. My most humble thanks go to 12 people who I've never formally met, who today share the honor of having set four beautiful souls free to rest in peace. Kathleen's reputation as a serial baby killer made her a target even with other inmates, and so she was placed in a segregated area of the prison for her own protection. Her hard-earned ability to detach and go numb served her well, and she kept her head down and any new relationships superficial. At night, she stuffed tissues in her ears to block out the noise. She was still unwavering in protesting her innocence, but most people just interpreted that as evidence of a sick and twisted mind. Kathleen had been tried and convicted of murdering four children. In the public's mind, Kathleen's guilt was an established fact. But through it all, there were still a few people who never doubted her. Among those were her old friends from Kotara High School, who endured the arduous prison checkpoints to visit Kathleen on the inside. They ate junk food from the vending machines, laughed and reminisced about old times. Sometimes so loudly, the guard came over to tell them they were having too much fun. One of those visitors was Kathleen's childhood friend, Tracy Chapman, the friend Kathleen had turned to all those years ago when she was trying to leave home as a teenager. Tracy hadn't been in Kathleen's life much throughout the 90s, partially because she wasn't a big fan of Craig, and now the fact haunted her. Somehow hearing about Kathleen's arrest woke her up. The picture painted in the media and the woman she knew was just too mismatched. Tracy was spat on and had death threats hurled at her for publicly supporting a pariah like Kathleen, but she fought steadfastly for a judicial review. Tracy's personal way of speaking disguised her grit, and she talked to anyone who would listen about the case. Gradually, her and her collaborators brought people on side. First came the appeal in 2005, although it did lead to a shorter sentence it failed to clear Kathleen's name. By 2018, Kathleen was still in prison, but her team had finally made a major breakthrough. They'd amassed enough fresh evidence to open a new inquiry. In 2003, Kathleen Folbig was convicted of the homicides of her four children. She appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeal and her sentence was reduced to 30 years, 25 years non-parole. In 2015, a petition on behalf of Ms. Folwig was presented to His Excellency the Governor. Uh, on my recommendation, His Excellency the Governor has today directed an inquiry into Ms. Folwig's convictions. The petition 
appears to raise a question of the evidence that led to Ms Folbig's convictions in 2003. That question concerns evidence as to the incidence of reported deaths of three or more infants in the same family attributable to unidentified causes. Can I say this has been an immensely difficult decision. Uh, Put yourself in the position of Ms Folbig's ex-husband, Craig Folbig. Uh, The worst thing that can happen to anyone in their life, I believe, is to lose a child. Just imagine what it must be like to lose four children. Uh, The distress that today's decision will cause uh, is something that has weighed on me heavily in formulating this recommendation to the Governor. Uh, But uh, ultimately, my job as Attorney General is to ensure public confidence in the administration of justice in New South Wales. Whatever view you take of this case, uh, it is is a tragedy beyond imagination that four beautiful children uh, were lost. Uh, That tragedy and the distress uh, that those circumstances and this inquiry, the announcement today will cause, have weighed heavily on me. But... In the end, uh, my job is to uphold confidence in the administration of justice. Kathleen's team brought forth a series of experts who testified that there were reasonable medical explanations for each of the children's deaths. But once again, the emphasis remained on the diaries and circumstantial evidence. The inquiry concluded the evidence pointed to no person other than Miss Folbeg. It was a bleak time for Kathleen who'd written, I've learnt a lot in prison that hope can destroy as much as it can enliven. At the tail end of 2020, Kathleen was moved to another prison where the work she'd put in gaining the trust of her fellow inmates was all undone. On New Year's Eve, a prisoner with a hatred for so-called baby killers savagely attacked her leaving her battered and bruised. During the first inquiry, medical experts had sequenced Kathleen's genome and had raised important questions about the children's health. However, scientific research published in November 2020 finally turned the focus away from the diaries and fully onto genetics. Genetic testing found that Kathleen and her children, Sarah and Laura, carried a rare mutation called COM2G114R, which affects the heart and can lead to sudden death. The new research found that this particular variant made other conditions and the medications prescribed to treat them especially dangerous. Sarah was on antibiotics for a croupy cough around the time of her death and Laura was being treated for a respiratory infection. In Patrick's case, Medical experts came forward to argue epilepsy was the most plausible explanation. In Caleb's, the evidence behind the manslaughter conviction was only ever based on a pattern that could now be explained another way. Taken together, the statistical fluke wasn't the four deaths, but Kathleen and Craig's rare and unfortunate genetic mismatch. That revelation came without Craig's involvement. He refused to provide a DNA sample for the purposes of the inquiry. His official reason was lack of funds. At the time this episode was recorded, he maintained his belief in Kathleen's guilt. In the end, however, his input wasn't necessary. 
A petition signed by over 90 prominent scientists led to another inquiry, and this time, the outcome was very different. Here's New South Wales Attorney General Michael Daly referring to the findings of retired Chief Justice Tom Bathurst, who spearheaded the second inquiry. And so considering Mr Bathurst's conclusion that he is firmly of the view that there is reasonable doubt as to Ms Falbig's guilt, I consider that his reasons establish exceptional circumstances of the kind that weigh heavily in favour of the grant of a free pardon, and that in the interest of justice, Ms Falbig should be released from custody as soon as possible. And so uh, this morning at 9.30, I met with the governor. I recommended that the governor should exercise the raw prerogative of mercy and grant Ms Falbig an unconditional pardon. The governor agreed. And Ms Falbig has now been pardoned. On June 5th, 2023, after Kathleen had served 20 years in prison, she was issued an unconditional pardon. When she was released, Kathleen went straight to Tracy's home. Tracy happened to run an animal sanctuary, which was just about the perfect place for a woman tired of judgment and looking for a little comfort. At a press conference the next day, Tracy described the feeling as surreal small moments meant so much to Kathleen. It was just surreal, actually. I can't, I can't actually say anything more that it was a surreal day. We just kind of got, enjoyed each other's company. She spent a lot of time with my dogs and getting to know my, my animals. And we've, we didn't get our steak for dinner, which was a bugger. So, <laughs> so we've had pizza last night. Um, we, we've had a bit of a flashback to the to 20 years. She asked for a Kahlua and Coke, so she had her first alcoholic beverage was a flashback for the for the last 20 years of a Kahlua and Coke. Um, garlic bread and pizza for dinner. I feel pretty ashamed of that, but you know, that's what you get. Uh, she slept for the first time in a real bed. She's made a cup of tea with real in a real crockery cup and had real spoons to stir with, which Sounds probably pretty basic to you all, but that's, she's, she's grateful. Um, decent tea, you know, real milk, <laughs> and um, slept in a real bed last night. So she's actually, she said it was the first time she's been able to sleep properly in 20 years, even though it was brief last night. Kathleen has so much to relearn about life on the outside, as well as all the advancements she's missed. Kathleen had basically missed the birth of the iPhone and struggled with technology most of us take for granted. Then there were the things she had to unlearn, like the tendency to wait for a guard to open doors when she could now open them herself. But the ordeal is far from over for Kathleen, with plenty of work still needing to be done to overturn her conviction. And if it is, Kathleen would be entitled to sue the government for compensation. At the moment, Kathleen is trying to focus on her newfound freedom and deciding what to do with the rest of her life. As she thought it through, working with Tracy at the animal sanctuary struck her as a pretty good option. There's plenty for others to ponder too. The need for scientific modernization in the Australian justice system. Meadows Law, for instance, the one that stated three infant deaths is automatic murder until proven otherwise, has now been thoroughly debunked as statistically and medically incorrect. Kathleen Tracy and her team 
hope a review will come in due time. For the time being, Kathleen has chosen to stay out of the limelight, and the only comments she's made publicly since her release were in the form of a short video sent out to Australian news stations. In it, Kathleen expressed her eternal gratitude towards her friends, family, and especially for Tracy. She called her pardon a victory for science, and especially truth. She concluded her short message by saying, I have forever and will always think of my children, grieve for my children, and have missed them and loved them terribly. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>